from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Taylor Nichols. And I'm Nick Richard. You know, I'm up in San Francisco right now, waiting out the rain on the West Coast. And I went to a really cool bike shop called American Cyclery. And they had some really beautiful vintage bikes on display. And it was just, it was right there by Golden Gate Park. Really, really a fun way to spend some time. Fun. Yeah. I also must say, Nick, I checked out the Valencia most talked about in the world bike lane. And I thought it was kind of nice. I know Stacy's going to be mad at me, but I didn't mind it. Oh, she's going to have something to say about that at the end of the show. <laughs> it's a center bike lane that runs north-south along a fairly commercial street. And I can see her point of view that it's a thoroughfare bike lane as opposed to you can stop at every shop along the way. But it was a nice bike lane. And even in the rain, people were using it. Okay. You're the something's better than nothing type. I am. You're right. And also, I have to say, Taylor, you made a comment last episode that ruffles some feathers back east. <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Any publicity is good. But we have a friend of the show named Patty Weems. You may know her as the Brazilian queen of the north. <laughs> uh, she's all about winter cycling. And so when you said, do you remember what you said? I do remember what I said. Yeah. I said, eat your heart out. If you're riding on your trainer in your basement, I had a beautiful ride in the sunshine by the ocean last week. Well, here's Patty's response to that. Hi guys, Patty Weens here calling in. I'm calling in response to Taylor's comment early on in the show about the folks out east having to ride their bikes in their basement. Well, Taylor, that's really cute. But as a bike commuter in the center of Canada, in the dead of winter, riding my bike in a basement would be a luxury. I'm a 50-year-old woman, a Brazilian woman, a bike commuter here in a city where it's winter six months of the year. And I'm talking real winter here where the temperature range between 32 and minus 22 Fahrenheit. I started by commuting because driving and parking downtown is too expensive and public transit here just sucks. The coldest day I've ever ridden my bike is minus 13 Fahrenheit or in Celsius that's about 25 below. I've noticed that there are a lot more winter commuters this year. I would say at least double the amount I usually see out there. And it could be that this year it's actually because we're having a much milder winter and less snow, or it could be that it's actually catching on. You start winter cycling to save money and then you keep going because you realize that some things start to happen. Your physical health improves, winter gets shorter, and the biggest surprise actually to me was that I started to feel invincible. And that feeling started seeping into all areas of my life and it just made me so happy. I tapped into a community of other winter cyclists that I never knew existed. I made new friends. I felt embraced and supported by other people I had never met before. Winter cycling is also a huge eye opener. It makes you hyper aware of the infrastructure inequality, the disconnected 
effectiveness of the bike network and the priority that's given to everyone inside of a car and most of all the lack of political will to make any real change to improve the safety of pedestrians and cyclists. Well, you know, just so Patty knows, Nick, I lived in New York for 10 years. I lived in Michigan for about 25 years. I do a lot of winter cycling and do enjoy it. So Patty makes a great point. But Patty, if you make your way out to L.A., I'll take you on a, a sunshine avocado toast driven bike ride. All right. Well, Anne-Marie Drolet is back. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Hey, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, you're a mechanic with Metro Bike Share in Los Angeles. How's it going? They're trying to replace your bike share system with Lyft? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty stressful. In my own personal opinion, I think that's a terrible idea, and I really don't want that to happen. So we're going to do everything we can to prevent that. Well, last week on the show, we had Allison Cohen on, the head of BTS and your boss, and she gave us a real good insight into what's going on and also a little bit more insight into how bike share works. So if you haven't listened to that interview, it was in last week's show, and I highly recommend checking it out. Nick, Valentine's Day is coming up. Do you do something for that? Do you go out to dinner? Do you give your your loved one a card? What do you do? Chocolate? I need to come up with something. Maybe a bike ride. You know, Momentum Magazine did a list of the world's most romantic cities for bike rides and bike riders. Paris was there, Amsterdam, London. Um, what else? Barcelona was there. What else was there, Nick? Budapest. Budapest, right. And it occurred to me that all of those cities are in Europe. Yeah. Europe has good biking. Totally. But so does Charleston, South Carolina. Very romantic place to ride a bike. New York City, San Francisco, where I am now. Very romantic to ride a bike. Where Ciclovia originated is probably pretty nice. Bogota? Yeah. Or Los Angeles. Very Los Angeles. romantic to ride a bike in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, we have two good interviews today, both by you, Taylor. Before Gil Penalosa, who's coming up, as Matt Scher. Matt is the journalist from the New York Times who wrote the article, Why Are American Drivers So Deadly? And we got him to sit down and talk to us on Bike Talk. People give the number one reason why they don't bike more is that the roads that they have to bike on are not safe. If the roads were safe, People say that they would bike more. And we know that more biking is important for climate change, for health, for air quality, for all of that. So our next guest is a contributing writer to the New York Times. And he wrote an article called Why American Drivers Are So Deadly. I want to welcome to Bike Talk, Matt Scher. Matt, welcome to Bike Talk. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Your article was really amazing. I, I think I read it once and then I listened to it. And I wonder if you could... Tell us how you started. Why did you choose to start that way? The piece starts with a doctor and researcher named Deborah Cools. She's in, in Las Vegas and Nevada, and she has two specialties. It's, it's not accidental because there's a lot of overlap in them. Her two specialties are gun, the victims of, of shootings, of gun violence, and victims of car crashes, whether they be pedestrians or drivers. And I started with Deborah because she has been tracking statistics around Nevada for her most of her career. She works in an ER in Las Vegas and had taken it upon herself to understand how and why car crashes get worse at certain times a year or in certain decades or in certain years and had noticed this tremendous uptick in about 2020, give or take, concurrent with the onset of the COVID pandemic. And it's worth taking a step back really quickly. I'm, I'm not going to 
do a full history lesson here, but the the reason it is so alarming and so you know clear cut and so the reason it was so clear to Deborah is that in the sixties, uh, in the fifties and sixties in America, we had a huge car crash problem. It was out of control, and a big part of what was causing that was structural defects in the cars, or more specifically, the manufacturers weren't being forced to make safe cars because the responsibility wasn't put on them. Right. This is how we how we know the name Ralph Nader. Uh, right. So these activists come along, they say you have to make cars safer. And car manufacturers do after Congress passes all this sweeping legislation. And then for decades, right, car crashes don't decrease. I mean, they're still way worse than other parts of the world, right, compared to Europe or Australia. They're still, America was still you know, way above, but car crashes did come come down because right. cars were safer. And then you just see this explosion, right? And in from 2020 onwards, that really didn't come down after after the pandemic was over. And what's causing it, what Deborah found out and what other researchers have, have found out is partially it has to do with the size of vehicles and the speed of vehicles. But a lot of it has to do with our behavior behind the wheel and this sort of disintegration of courtesy, of common sense on the roads, a pronounced uptick in speeding, in aggressive driving, which can be defined in different ways. But then also this pronounced uptick in things that you would have thought we left behind decades ago, like seatbelt use, you know, in 2020 people stopped buckling their seatbelts. They they were driving drunk or intoxicated way more than they used to. And this is after, you know, 10, 15 years of, of decline. So what Deborah says, and I think it's true, is that a switch was flipped. There was some sort of behavioral, um, something happened to the American psyche. And now your listeners are, are cyclists. I used to be a bike messenger. I'm a cyclist myself. And, you know, I've, I've spent... Um, I'm 42 now. I was a bike messenger in my 20s. And, you know, I remember thinking back then that drivers scared the crap out of me right, on a regular right. basis. Uh, but I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, it might be true that that drivers were always terrible to cyclists, especially before more infrastructure came into place. But it's just it's just this massive breakdown where drivers are worse to everyone right and again it's it's anger it's rage it's frustration it's anxiety it's fear it's just everything all at once and it's driven the fatality numbers in the united states way way up well do you think that americans suffer from those maladies more than people in europe do does that explain why the road deaths and the American drivers are so much worse here than they are in, say, Europe? No, I mean, I don't think statistically or or behaviorally we're, we're worse than, let's say, Australian drivers or European drivers. And in fact, some of the research I cited focuses on Australian drivers who have the same problem with road rage and, and can get angry. I think what's happened here is a sort of specifically American cocktail of problems. And one is that, and this is why I meant, I meant when I talked about Deborah Cools, I mentioned the gun debate. There are a lot of similarities between gun violence and car crashes and, and car violence. But the, the biggest is that we know how to stop both or at least how to radically cut down on both. With guns, we would stop it if we wanted to by restricting the types of weapons that 
the average citizen could procure, or at least right. putting people through more of a process before they're able to get a battlefield ready weapon. When it comes to cars and car crashes and our behavior on the road, we know what can work and what has worked in other countries, which involves a lot more enforcement, usually automated enforcement. It involves remaking our roads in a very specific way that would cut down on speeding. Um, but we have decided that that's not what we want to do as a right. country, right? And and the biggest example, you know, I, I should have known this, but didn't, is speed and red light cameras. You know, if, if, if your listeners probably drive by a gazillion of these things a day, they're mounted on top of red lights. Sometimes you see cameras when you're driving on the highway. What's shocking in America, in the United States, is that those cameras work, but law enforcement in a vast percentage of this country are not allowed to use those red light cameras or speed cameras to issue tickets to people because we have decided as a country that we don't want to infringe on people's liberties in that way, which is, which is fair. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I am sort of passing judgment on it, but I, it's, I am too. It's a political, it's a political decision, right. right? We've made this political decision, but you right. look at other countries and, you know, France is a, a really good example. France is the most sort of concrete example of how this works. You know, in early 2000s, they put in this huge network of speed cameras all over the country. Um, they said, we're going to ticket the heck out of people who are speeding and it, it's like a, it's like a cliff. The amount of car cra- the car crashes just nosedive, right. right? Instances of speeding nosedive because people internalize that they are being monitored in this way, and we have chosen not to do that. Now there are things that we are still doing. We're trying to do, and I talk about some of the work that the federal DOT is doing in sort of, you know, road dieting, traffic, you know, more roundabouts, more intersections, all the things that we're able to do on sort of a a state by state or city by city level that does work. But on a, on a national level, we've, we've made this decision, right? That that's, that's not the road we're going to go down. And then the last thing I'll say about this too, is, you know, you look at a place like, I don't know, Denmark, I mentioned in the piece, Copenhagen, you know, they made a decision that, okay, we are going to make this city very friendly to cyclists and pedestrians. And we have the political will to do that. And we have some cities in the United States that have done something similar. New York, you know, it's it's been a process where when I lived there 10, 15 years ago, they were in the midst of putting in all the bike lanes and there was a backlash, but they went through with it. They, they, you know, they, they saw it through and New York is a more walkable, cycle-friendly city now. But totally. the, the vast majority of the United States is depressingly car addictive. So it, it car addicted. And it's, you know, it's all, all of this is a very long-winded way of saying that, you know, we had a choice. We've always had a choice. We still have a choice, I suppose, although in a lot of ways it feels like the ship has sailed. But, you know, when you encounter a problem like this, this sort of anxiety or stress that comes up um, in in pandemic circumstances, it comes up in other countries too. It comes up uh, in other nationalities and other cultures. It's just that they're better equipped to handle its manifestations than we are. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that has been some of the criticism to the article that you put a lot of blame on the American driver and not on the American traffic engineer, road engineer, and not on the American politicians that are allowing, like you said, traffic cameras, speed cameras not to be used, allowing traffic engineers to build roads that aren't safe. Because I would almost argue that your article should be called, Why Are American Roads So Deadly?, but you have addressed some of that here, but you also talk about, you know, the drivers also that they're impaired or they're speeding or something like that. So how do you answer that kind of criticism? I mean, has there been much pushback on the New York Times site to the article or or what have the comments been and how would you answer that? So the single most common email, and the, I, I must have gotten a version of this email about 300 times. I stopped counting or stopped being able to answer these emails. But the email would be is typically shaped something like this that I'm thinking about. Thank you for your article. However, why have police stopped enforcing the law in this country? Why don't I see police on the roads in the way that I used to? Um, is this because of everyone suddenly terrified of defund the police? Is this because police have no money left? Is this because they're choosing not to enforce this? And then, yes, also some of what you're touching on, too, which is that politicians do have the means to crack down on this, do have the means to divert funds to more enforcement. And I think all of that is very fair. It is a political question. It, it absolutely is. And it's a political choice. And I share those frustrations. Now, here, here's where it gets a little dicey. I go back and forth with this in my head. I, I th mm -hmm. think about this all the time. I live in Atlanta where, where people drive like absolute maniacs. And sometimes I think to myself, yes, wh where are the police right now when there's this person tailgating me at 70 miles an hour? And then I think, you know, you have to be aware of the can of worms that more enforcement opens up uh, in, in a community, particularly in communities of color, particularly in poorer communities where lower income folks and folks of color tend to statistically bear the brunt of a lot of law enforcement tactics right. and can find themselves in traffic stops. Now, the counterpoint, the, 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 the thing that I would say on top of this, though, is that Automated law enforcement doesn't necessarily have that same problem. Right. Automated law enforcement doesn't necessarily lead to police shootings or police um, stops that turn fatal. So no, I, totally. I tend... a, a speeding camera or a red light camera doesn't really register if the driver is white or black or rich or poor. They just Absolutely. register whether the car is coming to a complete stop or speeding. And I, I think that that is, if, if you gave me a magic wand and said, okay, do something that's politically feasible, but will also change things very quickly, that is what I would do. I would say, all right, the United States needs to follow what Australia has done with their speed camera network, and they need to do it quickly. Now, you asked, too, about the responsibility of the state and the responsibility of cities and towns. And I, I think... Yeah, look, I mean, the blame falls there, too. It's it's hard because the other type of letter that I have gotten 
It's sort of, I mean, I'm sure you, you're, you can probably guess what I'm about to say, or, or you're familiar with this type of person, but it's, it's, well, I'm, I, and someone actually said this to me outright in a, in a very long curse laden email. Um, the reason I'm angry is because there's so much construction putting in bike lanes and the roads have gotten so narrow that I can't drive anymore. So of course I'm furious. And of course there's there's traffic everywhere and that's what's making me angry which is just sort of a a chef's kiss kind of comment right. but i you know i i bring it up because i think that that i've followed some of this again in the in in the in the city where i live you know cities and towns do theoretically want to make roads safer for cyclists and pedestrians but they they also you, they they will open up you know they'll have like a city hall open session where people can come up and and stand and make their comments and a lot of the time people will say well theoretically i oppose making roads safer but isn't this going to make traffic isn't this going to make everyone sit in traffic and honk their horns for 70 minutes a day and you know again this comes back to political will and right. how much people are really willing to do and how much americans and accept or will accept and and it's it's a very it's a it's a tangled thing i mean we, we do know what works right right, we, right. We, we we could change this and again this is the same as the gun thing and that we could we're just not because right. the will is not there right i would argue that signs don't work on the road a, a speed limit sign or a sign that says slow down doesn't work the way narrowing the lane works because that person who got up and complained at the meeting about you know the narrow lane slow them down that's that's the point of the narrow lane because i think one of the criticisms was that you sort of let traffic engineers off the hook we are yeah. building roads that allow drivers to drive drunk or allow drivers to be on their phone when they drive because the road is so wide because the road is so straight Absolutely. And, you know, I'll bring it back to Atlanta. This is the issue that we're running into right now in Atlanta. This traffic is clogged on the connector downtown. And the solution that the city has just rolled out is to widen the highway right. to even more lanes. And the place is already, the Mad Max metaphor gets overused, but this strip of highway in Atlanta is, it feels like Mad Max and they want to add more lanes. So, I, you know, I, I agree with that. And I, I think I accept that criticism. I think it's fair. I think, you know, for me, the part that I would have loved to have devo devoted more space to is car manufacturers and the car lobby, because I, you know, I, I think we talk a lot about the size of vehicles and especially when it comes to pedestrians and cyclists, there's no question. The research shows that the size of these SUVs they were putting on roads are just you know they're they're right. they're horrible. There's no vision, but the speed thing scares me immensely. I I like cars. Um, I like bikes and I like cars. And I, I don't know. I mean, I I I get wary about the speed governor thing and about the about the automatic, you know, throttling of speed that that some people have proposed. It makes me, you know, I think it would be even harder to get something like that through than, than the speed camera thing would. But I think it's something that ought to be seriously discussed in the United States, or at least we also ought to be having a serious discussion about how powerful these cars really are, which we don't, you know, you don't get a lot of those, that conversation. And, you know, I read car and driver all the time. And I remember seeing an article in there about 
about one of these Teslas that that's really fast, and the and the writer was worrying aloud about this kind of speed. And when a writer at Car and Driver is Right, worrying about right, the speed of a car, right, you know you might have might have a problem. right. The new Cadillac Escalade, for example, when you when you look at the front of that car, it's like a mountain. Like if you're standing to the side of it, the front grill. is like a mountain. I, I mean, granted, I'm Right. short. I'm only only about 5'7", but that thing's almost tall. That front grille is almost taller than I am. Right. And these are the, these cars are really popular for precisely that reason. I mean, I had a friend say to me, oh, I want one of those because I would feel so safe. I would feel like I'm on, on top of the road. I would Yeah, feel you're like in a I'm tank, on top of the high. right? Yes. And I don't know. I will will we ever see any sort of acknowledgement from car manufacturers about those hazards? I tend to doubt it just because Well, this is another if the New York Times writes about it, then we will, because one of the great things about your article is that it was in the New York Times. People who listen to Bike Talk are, for the most part, already sold on what we're talking about. But people who read the New York Times aren't necessarily aware that 40% of, of traffic deaths are caused by impaired drivers or that speeding is at a new epidemic level or, or even, you know, that road rage is taking over how people drive. It's horrible. The road rage stuff is is sort of the clearest manifestation of all of this, isn't it? It's it's the the sort of most violent, extreme example of the rage that seems to be bubbling in the cabins of so many cars. But it's you know it, it terrifies me because you just have to now assume that everybody is at the breaking point and. You know, a lot of the time you have to assume that maybe they have a gun on board or, Right. you know, it's it's just it's changed the way I drive writing this article. And it... I hope it changes the way people drive who have read the article or, again, listened to it. And there was so much information in it. I really enjoyed and appreciated you writing it. And I hope that you will stay on this beat and look at some of these other issues in more in-depth way, because when the New York Times prints it, it gets out to a much wider audience. And that's how we start to change the public conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I'm honored. I really appreciate it. Matt Scher, thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Taylor. Matt Scher, thanks a lot for writing the article. We hope you keep writing these kinds of articles and come back on Bike Talk anytime. And now you have another interview. Yeah, this is with Gil Penalosa. He had so many great things to say. Gil Pinalosa is the founder of 880 Cities, and he's also the founder of Cities Are For Everyone. He leads the consulting firm Gil Pinalosa & Associates, and he's the academic chair of the Norman Foster Institute for Sustainable Cities, as well as an expert advisor to the International Society of Urban Health. Gil Pinalosa, thanks a lot for coming on Bike Talk. Oh, thank you, Taylor, for inviting me. You know, I wonder if you could tell us what 880 Cities is. Well, 880 cities is a simple but powerful concept. It's what if everything that we did in our city, the sidewalk, the bike lane, the crosswalk, the library, the park, the restaurant, the building, everything had to be great for an eight-year-old and for an 80-year-old. So it's not 8280, it's 8 and 80 as an indicator. Right. Because if it's good for the 8 and it's good for the 80, it's going to be good for everybody from zero to 100. 
We need to stop building cities as if everyone was 30 year old and athletic and create cities for everyone. Right. Well, it seems like so many of the cities in North America are built for the young and athletic, especially when it comes to bike riding. There was a big controversy in the 1970s and 80s in bike riding of whether we build separate cycle paths for people on bikes or whether bikes ride in the road with cars. And it sounds like the 880 system would want to develop separate bike paths for people on bicycles and multimodal yeah, transportation. Yeah, that was a crazy idea that took place in the by, by some academic in the U.S., but now it's known all over the world. You need to have protected bike lanes. And it's very simple. The cars go at a very different speed and they are very big and very heavy. Uh, so the, the people riding bicycles need to be separate from the cars. At the same time, the people riding bicycles go a lot faster than people walking. So they need to have also separate. We walk at around three miles an hour. We bike maybe at 13, 15, 16 miles an hour, and the cars are going faster. So each one of them needs separate space. Uh, and I think that I don't know any city in the world that has more than 10% bike share that doesn't have physically protected bike lanes. No, no. So, so, so it, it, it is very clear that, that we need to have... And like you said, with the 8 and 80, I tell people, look, when they show me a bike lane, that is always really good, especially university students. I said, okay, would you send your little brother or sister, eight-year-old there? Would you send your grandparents there? If you would, it's safe enough. If you would not, it's not. And then that, that should be simple enough. Yeah, that really does clarify it for everybody. You know, I don't think anyone knew what an open street event was until in Bogota, Colombia, you started and in really improved Ciclovia. And now it is all over the world. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you started that and how you got that to grow from a small event once in a while to a weekly event that covers hundreds of miles of, of city streets and has, I think, thousands of people using it every week. In North America, we call it open streets, but I think the beauty of it is that it's also very powerful as a community builder. When I became commissioner, it was a small program that had been on for a few years and it was dying of only a few miles and we increased it to over 75 miles every Sunday of the year and every holiday. And we have about 1.3 million people coming out to walk wow. or run or bike or skate or chat or socialize. Uh, this is wonderful. And the beauty is that any city can do it. Cities, I've seen it very successful in cities of 100,000, of 1 million, of 10 million people. It works everywhere. Uh, and of course, if you have a winter city, uh, like let's say Minneapolis, then maybe you do it from May to September, October. If you have a city that has no winter like Miami or Phoenix or LA, you can do it year round. So you do it 52 weeks of the year. Why is this important? Because this is an area where you can mix people of all ages and all abilities. You can have, and you don't need to be in shape. You can be, is the young and the old and the rich and the poor and the fat and the skinny. 
is everybody, it's all ethnicities, all races. Uh, and that social integration uh, is what makes it very important. When I started uh, working in different cities, now I have worked in over 350 cities around the world. I always try to find the opportunity to talk about it because right. all you really need is people and streets. So if you have people and streets, you can have an open streets. And to really get the benefits, it has to be a program that is week after week after week. Unfortunately, in many cities, they do it once or twice a year, like an event. No, this is not the 4th of July. This is a program. And you get a lot of health benefits physically and mentally if you do it every week. Right. I tell cities that, that, that have not done it before, I said, okay, if you want next year, do it once a month, the first Sunday of every month. If it doesn't work, okay, then you don't do it in, tw- in, the, in the following year. But if it works, you do it weekly in the following year. And right. I think this is something that is low cost, low risk, high visibility, and lots of benefits. Well, every city has lots of people and lots of streets. <laughs> so you're right about that. In Los Angeles, we have an event called Ciclavia, and it it has expanded over the years, but it's been going on for about 10 years and I think this year we do eight open street events. And I think the point you made about making it weekly is so important and then expanding it because Ciclavia often does just a mile or two of open roads rather than connecting the downtown neighborhoods to the valley neighborhoods to the west side neighborhoods. And I think that that is so important. Is that what made it a success in Bogota? With Ciclavia, I mean, I love the people that created Ciclavia and it was very powerful and interesting. My only two comments for other cities is don't put any name related to cycling because it's uh, not about cycling. It's about everything. Right. Everywhere, two thirds of the people, 60, 70% are going to be cyclists. So you don't need to brand it around cycling because sometimes cycling becomes too polarizing and it's cars versus bikes. No. 70% of the people are going to be cyclists, so don't worry about it. But the other 30% are going to walk or chat or run or socialize or whatever. So that's one thing. Don't call it Ciclavia. Right. And number two, it has to be citywide also because I think one of the beauties is connecting the wealthiest parts of the city. So if you are in L.A., getting all the people on Beverly Hills and, and Brentwood and all of that with the poorest neighborhoods, how to connect. Right. The rich and the poor, the different ethnicities, the Mexican neighborhoods and the different the Asian neighborhoods and whatever. And that's one of the things I did in Bogota. In Bogota, there was only a small one and only in the upper income areas of the city. And I was obsessed with connecting the poorest because right. one of the things to me as equals, because the reality is that the, the rich people and the low income people, they don't live in the same buildings. The children don't go to the same school. Sometimes they don't even go to the same restaurants. Right. So how can we lower the barriers? How can we meet as equals? And I think that programs like Open Streets or Ciclavia is a wonderful way of connecting everybody, connecting the owner or the CEO of the large corporations with their spouses and children, connecting with their minimum wage worker and the spouses and children 
bicycles because mm -hmm. bicycles do not differentiate. One might be on a $5,000 bike, the other one might be on a 50, but they're having just as much fun. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's important. And, and also when you make it citywide, people get to know other parts of the city. Maybe people are very conservative. They, they might have gone to the same park for 10, 20, 30 years. But if they have the possibility to go on their bike or run and they go to another park and there's ballet parking, they, they get to see another park. They get to see other retail. Or you can open up the museums on Sundays and people can go into museums or theater or other, or other activities. So it's also a nice way to develop an attraction for the city. Right. Why do you think the bicycle has become this polarizing machine? Well, I think that in some ways, one of the things that I love about open streets on Sunday is that a lot of the people that go, they use cars Monday through Friday or Monday right. through Saturday. So that is also a way to lower the barriers because they say, oh, you know, once you get to see other people on bicycle, then you need, you, are, you end up being kinder to the people on bicycle. You are not as aggressive because you are also part of them. So, so it, it, it's useful. And also because for the, the last hundred years, not forever, the, we've had streets for thousands and thousands of years, but in the last hundred, we've been giving the streets to the cars. Car, the priority has been cars first, cars second, and cars third. <laughs> so anytime you tell, so they said, oh, we, oh, okay, we need a balance. No, no, first we need to balance and then we need to have equal opportunities. So the cyclists have been left out. We have sidewalks, and in most places, they are not really good enough or wide enough. Right. So where are you going to put the cyclists? So I think when you tell them that we need to create an area. But the other thing is that we need to be more generous. We need to realize that the people riding bicycles is good for the environment. It's good for mental health. It's good for physical health. Uh, I mean, the more people that ride bicycles, the more the, the, the people in their cars are going to have space because they are going right. to be fewer. Right. But, but we need to eliminate those things, uh, cars versus bikes, or, or because that doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, you have been an advisor to cities all over the world and certainly all over North America. Where are we going wrong as we're moving this fight forward for sustainable cities? Well, I think the, the main place where we have gone wrong is to that we have not understood that we need a bicycle network. We don't need bike lanes. We need networks. We need right. connectivity. So, because in many, many cities, after huge efforts of advocates, then they do two miles of bike lane. Right. That doesn't connect anything with anything. And then they said, oh, you know, we don't have a bicycle culture because I don't see the cyclists. Well, if you were not riding a bicycle because it was unsafe, and now 30% of the ride is safe, but 70% still not, you're not going to use it. Right. Uh, so it's, it's like if you are going to do a soccer field, and you only build one goal. And then you say, okay, <laughs> let's see if people use it. And then you say, oh, we don't have a soccer culture because right. I don't see people playing. Well, if you don't have a soccer field with two goals, people are not going to play soccer. Right. If you don't have a network of bike lanes, you are not going to have use it. I think we should focus all of the advocacy on cycling on two issues. One is to lower the speed in the neighborhood streets. All of the neighborhood streets should be 20 miles an hour. 
all of them. And it's not because 20 is plenty, that sounds nice, it's because we are gonna save lives. There's way too many people being killed and way too many people, children that don't walk to school. It's not only about riding bicycles, but are walking and developing community and so on. When you lower to 20 miles an hour, the neighborhood streets, all of a sudden more people walk and bike and you can mix bikes and cars when they are at 20 miles. Once you get to the arterials, you need a network of protected bike lanes. Without a network, it doesn't click. So it's not about putting bike racks on the buses. It's not about bike parking or maps or signage or courses. No, that, that doesn't work. So the only two things that increase the cyclist is to lower the speed in the neighborhood to 20 miles an hour and to develop a network of protected bikeways. So other things that are nice, such as the bike racks or the maps, or the, they are nice for the one or two percent that are already cycling. Right. But those are not going to get new cyclists. So my recommendation to advocates is to focus on that. Focus on demanding a minimum grid. Go to the all of the people running for council, for mayor, to the city staff, demanding a minimum grid for the city wherever they can connect from anywhere to anywhere, and you will connect places of origins and destinations. Because sometimes they say, oh, but we're going to put uh, bicycle parking. Why are elected officials putting bike parking or bicycles, bike sharing and other things? Because that only you need to write a check, nothing else. There is no cost. The right. cost is when you say, oh, we need to take away the, 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 the car storage, the car parking, right. and put a bike in. Or right. we're going to narrow the, the lanes. Also, another thing, Taylor, is that our lanes, most of the lanes are too wide for the cars. We are doing bike lanes that usually are 13, 14, 15 feet wide, when they could be 10. Something that is very, very interesting is that a few months ago, the John Hopkins School of Public Health, public health came out and said that if we narrow the, the lanes for cars to nine feet, not even 10, that has been a request right. to nine, we're gonna save lives. And we're gonna, and that was very, very important because if we have arterials of two lanes or three lanes, and we take away three feet from each one of those, we're going to open up the space for the bike lanes. Right. So we don't even have to eliminate car lanes. Just have the same two or three, but a little bit narrower, and then we create the space for the protected bike lane. And just the fact that the lane is more narrow will slow down the cars, is what you're saying. Also, it's going to be safer for everybody because when you put the speed limit at 30 miles an hour or 40 or whatever, and the lane is very wide, it's almost like an invitation to the to the car driver to go right. fast. Right. When the lane is narrower and it has trees and others, they, they usually go, go slower. Uh, but also the reality is that we need to create cities uh, thinking on how we're gonna be healthier and how we're gonna be happier. And it's about equity, it's about people of all ages and all abilities. And, and, and the reality is that too many people in the U.S. are spending more than 20%, 30% of their income on mobility when they have a car. Right. So if people spend 25% on the car and 35% on rent, uh, well, now they got 60% and they haven't even purchased a piece of bread. Right. Uh, so there is nothing that we could do to improve the personal income of people 
than allowing the possibility to downsize from two cars to one or from one to zero. And in order to do that, we need to be walkable and bikeable and have public transit. Right. That sounds like what I found in one of the articles I was reading about you. It says, we have to come up with a new use of cars. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're talking about, of a two-car family going down to a one-car family because people can now walk to the grocery store or walk to school or walk to work or walk to the transit stop. Exactly. And, and that is like the magic pill, the magic pill for almost everything, for physical health, for mental health, for whatever, for Alzheimer's, for depression, for anxiety, for heart attacks, for is physical activity, right. physical activity. And there is no other way, no other way to have large groups of population being physically active other than walking or riding bicycles as a normal part of everyday life. The only cities in the world that you have people that are physically active is where people walk or bike as a normal part of everything, in places like Copenhagen, uh, in the downtown, uh, over 60% of the trips are on bicycles. Wow. Metropolitan-wide, over 45% they are. And sometimes when I'm in the U.S., I've worked in more than 70 cities in the U.S., and they said, oh, you know, but it's, uh, it's because the roads are too narrow, or we have too many hills, or, or winter is very cold. Those are the three biggest barriers. Right. So if those are the barriers to be a great cycling city, places like Los Angeles would be the best cycling city in the world. Right. Because they have yeah. big roads where they can fit it. They have it's, per, it's very flat and yeah. the weather is magnificent. Yes. Fifty-two weeks of the year. Yes. So mo the weather most of, most of it is just it's just an excuse. It's right. infrastructure. Once you have the infrastructure, I mean, cities like Los Angeles, Seville, Spain. In Seville, Spain, no one bites, 0.6%, because they said it's too hot in the summer and we love cars. No, it wasn't that. It was because there were no bike lanes. There were two or three, but not connected, right. isolated. Right. In one government, they built of a hundred miles in three and a half years, a hundred miles. And all of a sudden went from 0.6 to more than 7%. Wow. And now their goal is to go to 15%. So it wasn't because they love cars. It wasn't because it was too hot in the summer. It was because there was no infrastructure. Right. Once you create the minimum network, then people are riding bicycles. Right. You know, we often talk that it took Amsterdam or Copenhagen you know, 40 or 50 years to make these changes after the oil embargo of the 1970s. It's taken Paris maybe 10 years to make some of these changes since Anne Hildago came into office. And as you say, in, in Sevilla, three years. But why is it taking so long in the United States? Well, you know, COVID, COVID was horrible um, for many reasons. But two things that that were good in COVID is one that people came out of the closet in regards to mental health. Right. Like we were, we're not talking about mental health. And now everybody realizes that, yeah, we're, we're physically active and we really ride the bicycle and when we're close to nature, it's good for mental health. But number two is that it used to take 10, 20 years to do a protected bike lane. Incredible. Now it took 10 or 20 days, days. Mm -hmm. All over the world, we saw right. in the U.S., we saw in London, in Berlin, in every city around the world, we saw how beautiful protected bike lanes were done 
in one week. So we realized that it was not a financial issue and it was not a technical issue. It was a political issue. Right. So we must learn from that. And for and like lowering the speeds, the mayor of Oakland, California, one day she said, as of tomorrow, all of the neighborhood streets are going to be slow streets. So the neighborhood streets are only for the people that live in the neighborhood. So if you're going on a big road and there is a traffic jam, you need to wait. You cannot go through the neighborhoods really fast. And now the neighborhood streets... They, they had no noise, no pollution. They were safe for people of all ages. And people right. were playing, people with disabilities. So again, they showed it was, it was not a financial issue. The U.S. could be a leader in so many things. For example, why not also compete and have the same bike lanes? People like Portland, they said, oh, no, but, you know, we're better than Atlanta. Well, no, Portland, you've got to be competing with Copenhagen or with Paris. Uh, why not? By the way, people are doing this. Also, we need to have cities that are fun, that are playful. And riding bicycles is, is part of this. This is going to be very, very important because the population around the world is, is going to start decreasing very fast. Right. Today in the U.S., there are more people being dying than being born. And the cities, the number one reason how the cities, the, the main goal of any city leader is how to retain the best mm -hmm. people, how to attract the best people, how to attract the teachers, the nurses, the coffee makers. Because the reality is that today, anybody that is good at anything, they can live anywhere in the world. If you are a good nurse or a good doctor or you are a good coffee maker or bike, or, or, or bike mechanic, you can live anywhere in the world. So why would you live in LA or in Portland or in Toronto or anywhere? You're right. going to live if you have a quality of life, if you have a city that is fun and is exciting. That's why Annie Dalgo is doing this in Paris. It's not because she has leftover money. No, she right. realizes that creative people, that fun, fun people, that people that are being sought after, they want cities that are bikeable. And she said in four years, one in Paris. Everyone in Paris is going to have a protected bike lane within one mile. And wow. she's doing it in four years. Right. So why does it Annie Dalgo able to do it in, in Paris and not others? Of course, there was opposition. Change is hard in Paris. Change is hard in LA. Change is hard everywhere. But the cost of doing nothing is not nothing. My call to the people that are promoting the use of bicycles is don't talk about bicycles. Talk about the benefits. For right. example, at school, we need children to walk and bike to school. Why? Because it's good for their mental health. They're going to be more alert. They're going to be better. But also, we need to stop people driving kids to the front door of the school. Because when there are cars going to the drop-off zone, the air in the classrooms that are near the door right. are, is poisoned for right. over two hours. Right. That's why the mayor of London already has more than 400 schools that they, they call them school streets. What right. is a school street? That from 7 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon, there are no car traffic in front of the schools. Paris is doing the, the same. Paris has 250, except that 80% of those 250 schools in Paris, they ended up closing those streets permanently. 
permanent. Right, right. And again, it's not because money is it's because they want to create cities that are fun, that are playful, that are safe. safe. They want to compete. Those cities want to compete with the cities in the U.S. and in Canada and in Copenhagen right. and in Australia. So, so we need to see cycling around that, around the benefits. To say, look, you want to see, you want your city to be economically competitive. It's about cycling. You want your right. city to have quality over. It's about cycling. You want your city. So, is let's focus on those benefits because maybe there is more agreement on the benefit, and then bicycle is the mean, not the end. Right. Right. Well, I really love how you say that because I do think that when we start talking about bikes and bike lanes, some people just turn off. But when we talk about safe streets or clean air or quiet neighborhoods, people say, well, I like that. And so maybe- maybe And also not... attracting people. Right. How, how, how are cities going to be competitive? Right. Only if they are playful. And even more after COVID, when people are working from home or maybe hybrid, three days in one place, two days in the other. Right. Cities that are playful are the ones that are going to thrive. Cities that have parks and trees and are walkable and that are bikeable. Bikeable is going to be very, very important. For example, right. older people. Every single day, 10,000 people in the U.S. are turning 65 years old. Every day. 10,000 yesterday, 10,000 today, 10,000 tomorrow. People want to age in place. Right. And one of the elements of aging in place is being able to walk or bike to their places of destination. So right. that's why bicycle has to be safe for everybody. It's not just for the 20 to 15 spandex. It's for people of any age and any ability. So so, so I think if, if we reposition cycling around that, around economic competitiveness, around mental health, around physical health, around quality of air, around climate change, and so on and on and on. Well, that makes me think of a quote that I've mentioned on the show before, that cycling doesn't solve any one problem, but that it's a, it's a part of a solution to many problems. Gil Pinalosa is a champion of open streets, of city parks, of sustainable cities, Thank you so much for you know sharing your time and your expertise with our audience on Bike Talk. How can people find you on social media or get more in touch with what you're doing? X, former Twitter at penalosa underscore G, but also people can go to the website at gpenalosa.ca or 880cities.org. Keep in mind, it's not about a bike lane. It's about a network. It's about connectivity. Yeah. I love what you said about 20 miles in the neighborhood and networks outside the neighborhood. That's the only two things that really make a huge difference. So if we can focus so that when you ask someone running for mayor of your city or for councilor, and they said, oh, you can say, are you for or against the minimum grid? Oh, no, I love bikes. No, I'm not asking you if you love bikes. Are you for or against the minimum grid? Oh, no, we're going to put bike parking. No, I'm not asking about bike parking. Right. I'm asking you about the minimum grid. Right. Narrow down our asks. That's exactly right. Those two. 20 miles an hour in the neighborhood streets and a network of protected bike lanes. Gil Pinalosa, thank you very much. Thank you, Gil. One of the things that keeps coming up is connected, protected bike lanes, networks. Yeah. And slowing down the speed in neighborhoods to make it safe so that cars and bicycles can coexist on the same street. Well, good show. Thanks, Taylor. And Anne-Marie, you're still with us. Thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for having me. You know, send us your comments and your questions for Anne-Marie. For if there's anything Taylor said that you object to, <laughs> you can go to biketalk.org and get in touch. And remember, if you like the show, spread the good word. 
is Stacy with a bike thought. Budget deficits, housing shortages, clogged streets, traffic collisions, pedestrian fatalities, economic inequity, wasted time, traffic jams, road rage, fire natos, heat domes, bomb cyclones, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, stress levels, depression, anxiety, loneliness. America's century-long obsession has divided our communities, shortened and reduced the quality of our lives, poisoned our air and water, and made us poorer in so many ways. Jane Jacobs published her discovery in 2004. The chief destroyer of American communities is the automobile, and our addiction to individualism and convenience has created seemingly incurable car dependency. So many of us are trapped in boxes separate from others and the world. This isolation is unhealthy for people, cities, and our planet. But treatment is now available, and all we need is for our cities to embrace it by creating bike grids, no-car streets like school streets, and what Valencia should be, truly slow-car streets in every neighborhood and protected bike lanes stitching them all together so anyone of any age at any time can ride wherever they wish to go. We and our cities will be happier, healthier, safer, saner, more productive, and prosperous. There is a way out of this mess, and bikes are the cure. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles, Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.